Bienvenidos and welcome to the Voces Podcast. My name is Ana Lucia Lopez Reboredo, and I am your host. Today's guest is Nate Looney. Nate is the CEO and owner of Westside Urban Gardens, an urban agricultural company based in Los Angeles, California. Nate is also Avodah's Manager of Racial Justice Initiatives, leading diversity strategies at Avodah with a focus on Jews of color. In addition to being a community organizer, entrepreneur, and urban farmer, Nate is an Army veteran, having joined the U.S. Army National Guard in 2003. During his time in the Army, Nate was part of the rescue efforts during Hurricane Katrina in 2005 and was deployed to Iraq in 2008. Nate decided to leave the Army to finish his college education and begin his gender transition. Nate is a graduate of American Jewish University and has been featured as a veteran farmer on the Lydia Celebrates America program on PBS and LA Fox Morning News. He has been a guest speaker for USDA, Kaiser, Food Tank Summit, and Virginia Tech. Welcome, Nate. It's great to have you. So whenever we get started, I always, always, always want to give folks who are our guests the opportunity to kind of forget about the bio I just read and bring into the space elements of yourself that wouldn't necessarily be captured in your bio. So what are we missing? What are things that are important to the conversation with regards to who is Nate Looney and what is it that gets him here today? Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. This has been a long time coming. It's exciting. And, and I'm happy to, to share a little bit about who I am and how I got to this moment in time. You know, when I think about what informs my identity, the first word that comes to mind is intersectionality, because there are so many parts of my life that on their own stand on their own. For example, I'm a veteran. That's one of the things that I lead with. That's one of my, my dominant identities. And I'm also a Jew of color. Sometimes those are in sync with each other. Sometimes they're in conflict. Beyond that, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm really interested in things that are, great, are for the social good. I think as a veteran and in the military, there's often the concept that you are tearing things down and being destructive. And being in agriculture is the opposite of that. And it's restorative. It nourishes people. Not to say that being in the military is bad, but it has this perception that being in the military is, is all about doom and gloom. But then, you know, there's another part of my identity that I hardly ever speak about, which is the fact that I'm Latino. I don't really speak about it very often because if you look at me as I walk down the street, you wouldn't assume that that was a part of my heritage. You know, my mother was born in Panama. Her first language was Spanish. I have tons of cousins, more cousins than I can count in, in Panama because, you know, we got big families. My mother came to the United States when she was 13. And, you know, that's always been a, a part of me knowing who I am when we talk about immigration, like how the immigration story for folks resonates with me. It's that I come, I'm the child of an immigrant. My father was from Louisiana, descendants of slaves, enslaved people in the U.S., but I have that dual identity. So that's something that people really wouldn't know about me just by meeting me. Ooh. Thank you so much for centering us in a little bit more about your background. For so many people, there's all of these elements that are so central to who we are that aren't necessarily things that we wear on our sleeve. And I think what you're bringing in is such a perfect example of how we sometimes are so quick to summarize people because that's kind of how our brains work. We look for patterns and those are the patterns of how we make sense of so much of the world. 
But those patterns, those shortcuts are often quite at the disservice of building relationships and honoring the people in front of us. So I appreciate you bringing in the nuance. I also appreciate you bringing your mom into the story. I'd love to hear more about her if you're open to sharing. What was her experience like moving to the United States from Panama? Um, and as an Afro-Latina woman, how was she perceived by others around her? And, and how did that perception shape your experience or, or not shape your experience when it came to developing an identity that was rooted or not rooted in Latinx culture? Yeah, when you saw her, you didn't see someone that was Latina. You know, you saw a black woman and, and you know, she moved to Los Angeles. When you spoke to her, like as I remember her speaking, she didn't have any sort of an accent. If you talked to her on the phone, you might have thought you were talking to a white woman, um, you know, because that's the way we assimilate to in, in order to, to get by. And, and I understand why they did it. But a little bit of a disservice to me is I was not taught to speak Spanish at all. Family would switch to Spanish if they didn't want the kids to understand what they were talking about. And part of it, too, because I, I asked a few people and they were like, we don't want you to have to go through the same struggles that we had to and, and learning a second language. And, you know, now here we are all these years later. I'm like, I really wish that I'd grown up speaking Spanish. But but, you know, yeah, she does. She didn't really talk about what that was like. But I can only imagine that it was challenging because, you know, if you think you're 13 years old moving to a whole new country, there's so much that you have to get used to. And it wasn't something where she moved with her mother. She moved to live with some of my aunts. And because the way it worked is one set of family members came over and got established and then would bring younger folks over uh, to give them more opportunities. But, you know, it was definitely a part of, of my life whenever we had any sort of family get togethers. There would definitely be like patacones, every tostones, every time. Like there, that, that was like one of the main things that would be, you know, on the plate, you know, rice and beans. My uncle used to throw these house parties and it would be super lit with nothing but like salsa and merengue. And, and uh, this is a little bit before bachata, but like there would just be music all night. And, and I just remember being a little kid, you know, in the backyard dancing on his feet, you know, salsa on his feet. And those are some of like my, my earliest memories that I'm tied to. Nice. Those, those parties do sound lit. <laughs> When it comes to Latin American culture and Latin American communities, we have such a strong connection to our national identities. And I'm curious for your mother, who was born in Panama, and even though she came to the United States as a young as a young woman, as a 13-year-old, what was her experience like living in the United States? Did she continue to identify as Panamanian? Did she adopt more of an American perspective around identity, specifically race-based how do you remember her exploration of her own identity? And how did you hold all of that? I think for my mother, her Latina identity was something that was a, a core part of it. Like I still, I have her Panamanian passport. My one aunt that's still living goes back to Panama and spends like two or three months at a time out there. And if I think about how they view themselves, it's like Panamanian first, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm Panamanian first, and then also because I'm in the United States, while I'm within the context of the United States, I identify as Black. What I think about sometimes is like the stories that my, my family will tell me about times when people don't realize that they can speak Spanish, you know, based on the color of their skin, and how that plays out when they open up and respond in Spanish. 
Um, I don't think I like if I really think about it, I think that maybe part of what their understanding of racism is, is a result of having something to compare it to from being in Panama versus coming into the United States. And, and I think that's the same thing in, in Panama amongst my family is that their primary identity is Panamanian, but, but it's not all of it. And when we talk about migration, you know, there's this awareness of the fact my family didn't start in Panama. Most of the family that came over to Panama, they did it while the canal was being built. And so my grandfather and great-grandfather were both engineers that worked on the Panama Canal. And so that's what brought them over. And so it's like there's there's more to the story, but they don't identify as Jamaican. You know, but the, the primary identity is, is, is Panamanian. I, I think that's really interesting, especially I want to think a little bit more about what it means. I have some thoughts that I'm not necessarily ready to shell out in this moment. But when you're talking about your grandparents and your great-grandparents, your grandfather and your great-grandfather coming from Jamaica to work on the canal and then adopting, and then your family today adopting strictly Panamanian, you know, heritage or claiming strictly Panamanian heritage. Uh, I I would love to explore that with you offline a little bit more, because I think there's a lot there. So I'd love to switch gears a little bit and start talking about your passion for farming uh, and explicitly urban farming. Now, could you share with us a little bit more about what urban farming means? Because I think for a lot of people, when they hear those two words together, they're thinking farm in the city. And perhaps that's not necessarily what we should be imagining. So could you just give us a little bit more detail as to what urban farming means and everything that it, that constitutes urban farming? So if we're talking about the, the industry of urban agriculture, we're talking about growing food in urban environments and urban settings, talking about lower food miles. So if we're talking at Los Angeles, the food is grown within five to 10 miles of where it's going to be consumed. There's local, which is considered under 35 miles, and then hyper-local, which is under five miles. So urban farming is if you're producing food in, in an urban city or a metropolitan area to be consumed in that same area. Thanks. Thank you for bringing that down. Uh, I thought I knew a lot about urban farming, but apparently I don't. <laughs> so you those specific breakdowns really helped me think about all the little key pieces uh, and the infrastructures and the systems that work to make urban farming a thing and make it actually be something that is viable. You're a farmer. You are a fifth generation farmer. And you have farming ties from both your parents, from your father, and you have farming ties from your mother. The history of agriculture in the Americas is complex, both with regards to the history of enslaved people forced into agricultural labor. And of course, the current inequities experienced by migrant farm workers. How do you, as a Black man, as a Jew of color, reconcile those histories and current events? And what are those things that motivate you to remain in this field, to stay in something that could be so easily forgotten about as a way in which to resist old histories? Yeah, I think that this legacy of disempowerment on both sides. And on, on the black farming side, there is this idea, or we knew, we know that at one point in time, there were a significant number of, of black owned farms in this country. With the commercialization of farming, and particularly with the economic challenges in the 80s, a lot of the, the black owned farms sort of went by the wayside. And for a lot of folks, the idea of working the land is just a, 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 associated with toil. 
Like, it's like, what's the benefit of working the land if people are going to look down on me because I work with the land? And if on top of that, I'm not actually going to be able to make a living wage and take care of my family by working the land, what's the point of continuing to do this? And then on my Latino side, it's like there's this legacy of migrant and farm working. Between both of them, I think for me, what sort of empowers me to do this work is changing the narrative. This new generation of farmers, a lot of us are privileged to have college degrees. How can we leverage that, that education in order to lift other people up and, and move away from this narrative of what farming is? Uh, because it's always funny to think about like, oh, look down on these people that are doing farming, but then you ask that same person to spend an hour in the field and they have a whole new level of respect for what it takes to produce the food that we consume in this country. And, and so I think that like for me, part of it is just creating models for what it looks like to get over the barriers to entry and also reframing what it looks like to, to be in agriculture. And that's the case with urban farming. You know, if you can grow enough food to service farmers, markets and, and customers on a fraction of the amount of land that you need for commercial farming, it just changes how we're going to be moving forward. If we think about the next 10 to 15 years what agriculture is going to have to look like, specifically with climate change, I think that this is one of the best fields to be in to really impact how everybody's living going forward. I really appreciate your entire thinking and your thought process and how you've taken something that has such negative and and painful ties and made it into something that really feels like you're reclaiming it for your own. So I really honor and I really, I value that. I'm, I admire that. You know, when I think about farming, I think about land, like you need land, you need space. And that also makes me think about the number of inequities that are kind of at the backbone of this country that have allowed certain populations to own land and certain populations to not own land. Specifically, I'm thinking about people of color. I'm thinking about black folks who have been time and time and time again, had their lands taken away, have not been given the opportunity to own land. And so I'm curious, like, how do you make sense as an urban farmer, as a Black urban farmer? Like, how is it, do you feel like you have the same opportunities as any other farmer, whether in an urban environment or in a place like the Central Valley or Middle America? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to name that for farmers of color, the opportunity cost is different. Don't necessarily have the economic resources to lean back on from family members, the cost of doing farming is a lot harder. You're not receiving legacy land from a a parent or grandparent. You're starting from zero. The barriers are high, but at the same time, I think it's important to recognize that what often happens is in our communities of color, their access to food looks very different and access to fresh food looks different. And so the next step from that are what are the public health implications of not having that access to healthy food uh, for educational outcomes, for long-term health outcomes. And it's easier to look at farming as saying like, okay, we're just solving the problem of of feeding feeding our community. But if we look at it at the bigger scope of like, how are we going to lift people up? Access to food and access to, to occupations around food technology and food sustainability are really going to be key drivers not just about being able to grow food, but growing food within a living wage for yourself and then providing access to others. So for example, when I was growing commercially, what I charged in Beverly Hills for my produce 
and what I charged in, in central LA were two different prices on purpose because I wanted to give access to food. And if ever, you know, there were a few times where I'd have customers that were at my Beverly Hills market that would come to one of my other markets and they'd say, well, well, why is it cheaper here and more expensive there? And I'd just very easily say, well, you can afford to pay more here. And that enables this community to be able to afford the produce as well. And I never had anyone that specifically went back to my cheaper markets just to get the, the better price. They understood what it was all about. And I think that's a, an important part of, of changing this industrial complex. And I think that the other part of it is modeling to other young farmers that this is something that you can do. You can come up with new systems and structures in, in order to leverage your resources across the board. Yes. Yes. I love that you did that. I think it's so important to be honest about why we need to charge different prices in different places, because with some communities paying a little bit more, we make so many more things accessible to other communities, especially those that, as you said, might not have natural, easy access to fresh foods, healthy foods. And I think that's an important piece for us to hear from a farmer who is employing something like this in order to kind of create a more sustainable way of thinking about food, not just as a farmer, but also as a community member. So I really, I love that. Thank you so much for bringing that in. I know that you're a farmer, a fifth generation farmer, but did you always know you wanted to be a farmer? Like, did you enter the army and say, okay, I'm going to do my time here so that then I could go to college and then become a farmer? Like, What was that trajectory like for you? Not at all. Not at all. I got most of my exposure and experience in agriculture through veteran communities. This whole concept of doing restorative work is something that's a common theme among veteran farmers. It's not only restorative in that we provide services to our communities, it's also restorative for us. Like there's a lot of folks that come back, myself included, with PTSD and look for ways to heal. And there's something about working with the land that is inherently healing. As I was ran, rounding out my, my undergraduate degree, I was just thinking, I'm like, I want to do something that's healing for me and that feels good and nourishes my soul. Before I went back to school to, to get my degree, I was uh, selling real estate. No, no shade to real estate agents out there, but that's not the most nourishing career to be in, you know. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I recognize that, you know, as a black man, I knew that how people would interpret me would be different depending on what industry I went into. And as someone with eight years of military experience, I wasn't willing to go into any sort of industry at entry level. I started thinking about what are my hobbies? What do I enjoy doing? I'd always enjoyed growing things. I'd like, you know, I'd always have a few plants growing at my house, a few pepper plants, you know, I always got a habanero growing. So I did some inter informational interviews with folks around agriculture. And then a six-week course in, in Denver with Veterans to Farmers, which is an organization specifically for veterans looking at getting into agriculture. And then followed that up by three months in the Bay Area working at an aquaponic farm. From those things, I realized that this is something that I could see myself doing in, in the long term. There's a real gem there for people interested in getting in agriculture to like dig back into their roots and not just focus on the chains and the toil, but just like the beauty and the ingenuity, you know, because it, it takes a lot for someone to be able to be successful with two hand with both their hands tied the back, behind their back and one chain on one leg. Being able to dig into that ancestral DNA and the strength that exists there is, is really important. I have my hand over my heart just thinking about 
what you said around needing something that's healing and regenerative and especially after your service, which thank you for your service and, and your work. And, and also just thinking about, man, like there's so much healing that needs to take place for so many people and, and something so simple, like putting our hands in the soil, how comforting that can be and how healing that can be. So I'm just, I'm imagining that and I'm feeling inspired to go get the, my bed of vegetables going again, because I think you're right. I think that there's something that it's so as humans, you know, as people who have lived off the land for so long, that's how we've, that's how we cared for one another. So this actually brings me to the Jewish piece. We've talked about your connection to farming via your mother and your father, but we haven't talked about your connection to farming as a Jewish person. And so I'd love to hear how Judaism plays a role in your vision for farming. Through all of this, I think that the through line for me is Jewish ethics. Part of when I was creating my business, I was, I was, you know, I was at American Jewish University. So I was spending time in the library looking at business ethics from a Jewish lens. And, and what does it mean for us to have honest weights and measures? And what does it mean to make sure that you are paying your employees living wages and paying them on time? And, and also like leveraging your resources to your community. I, I think that those are also things that I very much tie, tie into how I work. And right now we're in the middle of Shemitah. What are the things that we need to be releasing in order to be able to grow better? Hmm. What can we let go of in order to grow better? Thank you. That is, that is quite the question. It's the question of the decade, if, I, if I'm correct. <laughs> Certainly, we're entering the first Shemitah year of the 2020s. And I think that's a really great place to center ourselves even if we don't have a practice of acknowledging the Shemitah, of thinking about how the Shemitah is also a part of our lives, regardless of whether or not we live in agrarian reality. Uh, because I think there's a lot of things that we can glean from that agricultural wisdom around the fact that we are always planting seeds, we're always growing, we're always regenerating, and we can always let go of certain things in order to be in better alignment, to grow in stronger alignment. So thank you so much for sharing that wisdom. So before we go, I'd love if you could share a little bit more of your wisdom, specifically on how we can better support urban farmers, just farmers in general. I think that where many of us are constantly wondering, what else could we be doing? What are actionable things? And I'm certain that you might have some answers for us. The first thing that I would say is buy local. A lot of farmers that sell in farmers markets are open to pre-orders. It actually makes our lives a little bit easier if folks pre-order and just come and pick up their orders at the farmers market. Because the, the work of a local farmer that's selling in a farmers market is not easy. Also getting to know the farmers in the farmers market. I, I, I had some customers, some black customers that made it a point to seek out black farmers that were selling in the farmers markets and get to know them and support them. It, it's also being conscious about where you're purchasing your food and, and where it's coming from. Like, obviously we understand that sometimes convenience plays the plays a role in priority. And yes, sometimes you just got to go to the 99 cent store to get that iceberg. But as much as you can try to support local farmers and then also seek out the local urban farming operations happening in your area. And then also, you know, it's keeping abreast to what's happening when it comes to policy change as much as you can. So much, Nate. It's been a joy 
to sit with you, to learn from you, to process with you. I really value who you are as a person, as a friend, as a leader within our community. And really, I just feel so lucky that our our members, our community members are able to listen to your story and really have your story be a central piece to this puzzle that we're co- that we're building together and that puzzle being the the never ending puzzle of Latin Jewish identity. So again, it's been a pleasure and I really look forward to continuing to to work with you in different capacities. Yeah. Yeah, this has been fantastic. It's it's always nice to be able to not just focus on one aspect of of the intersection but to like bring it all together and, and bring it home in one picture. So super excited to, to be here with you today and, and chat about all the things, you know, super excited to, to see more of what comes out of Jutini Coke. Like y'all are doing cool stuff. <laughs> Thank you so much, Nate. Your story is a reminder that no two Latin Jewish stories are alike. And therefore it is important that we continue to elevate as many Latin Jewish stories as possible. To all of our listeners, thank you for your love and encouragement. We are thrilled to be back for a second season, and we wouldn't have been able to do this without your support. New episodes will be released every Friday from October 1st through December 17th. For more information, please visit jupina.org. Until next time, ciao!